Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. So, um, welcome to our um, recent foray into Twitter spaces. We are today going to be uh, tackling the subject of um, the recent programs in the region, uh, specifically looking at Pakistan and Sri Lanka. Um, and we have a couple of speakers who will be kind of giving us um, input um, on, you know, the, uh, the situation in these countries. So um, we have with us Amar from uh, Pakistan and one of our former contributors, um, Amita Rupakrasam from Sri Lanka. Um, Amita, nice to have you back with us on the space. And uh, just wanted to actually kick off um, asking, you know, just generally, what are the factors in your opinion that kind of led to uh, Sri Lanka needing to go to the IMF um, for aid? Now, the government narrative has been that the crisis has been caused largely by COVID and the Easter Sunday attacks. Um, you know, is that narrative accurate or were there other factors in play? Hi, Raisa and uh, everyone listening. It's nice to uh, hear your voices again after so long. Um, okay, so to tackle this question, let me tell you that there are quite a few different factors that have contributed to Sri Lanka's economic crisis and it's having to have gone to the IMF. Um, so Sri Lanka, for some background, is a middle-income country. We've had um, a high debt-to-GDP ratio, about 120% prior to our default in April. And uh, we've had low levels of government revenue reflecting various you know, structural weaknesses in our economy. Uh, those weaknesses existed even prior to 2018, 2019, even prior to um, you know when uh, COVID actually hit and before the Ukrainian war happened, uh, raising global commodity prices. Um, in 2019, when uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa was elected, the Sri Lankan government would then implement certain policies that would make these structure that would exacerbate some of these uh, structural weaknesses in our economy and make our uh, economic situation much worse. So among these, of course, were the were the tax cuts. These, these were present in Gotabaya Rajapaksa's manifesto. Sri Lanka already has a low tax to GDP ratio. Um, and so implementing those tax cuts were devastating. They would lower confidence in uh, our economy and our ability to pay back our debt. Um, we, uh, the, I mean, the government then also implement a ban, uh, implemented a ban on chemical fertilizers, which would devastate our harvest, um, we, our agricultural harvest. We, um, we saw import controlling and increasing protectionism. Um, and, you know, those added to the many trade barriers Sri Lanka already faced. Um, for context, you know, Sri Lanka is ranked about 132 out of 177 countries with economic freedoms, and that's an index which includes uh, also trade freedom. Our trade freedom, you know, went from moderately free to repressed between 2018 and 2020, and the import uh, the the import controls uh, imposed in 2019 would create black market stability. We also had in 2019. The government fixing our exchange rate, financing our deficit by printing money. Uh, we kept our interest rates low to finance consumption during COVID. And all of that led to, you know, expanded money supply and eventually high levels of inflation. So today, headline inflation is around 50% and expected to rise to about 70% in the next couple of months. And food inflation is around 60%, which is uh, uh, horrific given, I mean, that this means food is essentially unaffordable for many families in Sri Lanka now. So... 
yes, I, I understand like the government rhetoric has been about um, COVID and, you know, the tourist arrivals. And of course, that does play a, a part in all of this. Uh, there are certain global factors. The rise in commodity prices is significant, but um, but what we're really seeing is the the um, the loss of faith in this government and and in its economy, um, as assessed by you know uh, 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 credit rating agencies and so on, preventing us from being able to roll and so on, um, adding to uh, a fundamentally weak economy to begin with, even in 2018 2019. So we can't we can't rely solely on the government's narrative. Um, we can't uh, rely solely on the government's na- uh, rhetoric about COVID and um, you know these uh, these external factors. There are certainly a lot of domestic factors that contributed to Sri Lanka's economic crisis today. Thanks for that, Amita. Um, again, there's been quite a lot of pushback actually from uh, countries Pakistan and Sri Lanka about the role that the IMF um, plays in economic development, even in a crisis. Um, why do you think that is? And do you think that these concerns are justified? Yeah, so, okay. So there are quite a few different types of criticisms of the IMF, right? And uh, some of these criticisms, of course, valid. They're legitimate criticisms and they're criticisms we should continue holding uh, um uh, up to the IMF, um, but um, some of these criticisms, of course, there are they're not they don't they're not logically consistent. Is is what I would say. Um, let me let me try and outline some of the criticisms of the IMF that I've seen. So, for example, there's been criticism of the governance structure of the IMF, right? That it's skewed to favor advanced economies. Um, I think that's a pretty valid criticism of the IMF. You know, it's been. Um, uh, the criticism is is roughly about uh, how voting power is skewed towards major European economies, the U.S., um, and it's led to some allegations of excessive political intervention and unfair treatment of some members. For example, during the Eurozone crisis, the IMF was brought in, and uh, when the IMF's Independent Evaluation Office reviewed the fund's handling of four of the crises in Greece, in Ireland, um, in Portugal, in Spain, they found that there was indeed excessive political influence on IMF decision-making and that the IMF didn't implement a coherent Euro-area strategy, that it failed to comply with its own standards for uh, transparency and accountability. So yeah, there are there are definitely like valid criticisms um, of the IMF. I've also seen this other criticism of the IMF on the principle of conditionality that it, that it imposes on its member countries in order to receive financing. Now, um, from the IMF, IMF's perspective, these conditionalities are actually quite necessary to reduce the disc on loan repayments, right? And I think that's a reasonable demand, actually, to have such conditionalities. Uh, why would we expect an international institution to lend to another current country if there's no guarantee that that country will ever generate enough revenue to pay back the loans, right? So, um, and also, you know, one of the advantages of dealing with the IMF um, and countries, uh, developing countries often go to the IMF when they're in, in distress is that uh, engaging with the IMF and going through a program actually boosts confidence in the government. It boosts confidence that that government is able to then, you know, uh, generate enough revenue to pay back loans. And it's so it, it makes the government more creditworthy, right? Um, so the fact that uh, the IMF has this principle of, uh, uh, of conditionality um, doesn't seem to me to be a valid criticism. 
there is valid criticism, I suppose, around the design and applicability of these conditionalities, right? So um, now often when the IMF comes in um, develop into to a developing country, uh, national leaders may say that, you know, the policies that are implemented by these countries should be dictated by the country itself and not by uh, the IMF, which may be detached from the way that these these uh, policies should be designed and the way that they should be imposed. Um, you know, the, the national leaders who are engaging in this process may say that that they know best, they know their countries best, they know their country's economies best, um, and that the conditionalities uh, attached to an IMF program can be harmful to a country's development. Now, there, there there's, I mean, I think it's it's uh, that's a, a kind of a, a, a more tricky criticism. Uh, I think a lot of the time national officials actually think that the economy will improve um, and that they don't need to implement all these tough policies uh, demanded by the IMF. But, you know, th there needs to be some reflection on why this country is in distress to begin with. Um, in Sri Lanka, you know, the economy is in crisis because of uh, corrupt, protectionist, populist, crony capitalist policies that were implemented by our politicians to essentially serve a rent-seeking elite. Um, and so in that context, um, you know, uh, do our national leaders actually have the credibility to say that that their uh, economic recovery or economic plans are the ones uh, that are going to steer the country back into economic prosperity? I'm not I'm not sure that that's the case. I think actually in Sri Lanka's uh, case, there's a lot of evidence to point to how um, our own policies implemented by our own leaders have led us to this very crisis, right? So um, so it, it's really important, at least from my perspective, it's very important that we look at every policy that is being negotiated and proposed by the IMF, by uh, by the government, and, and to see what kind of secondary impact it's going to have, how long it's going to take to implement, um, is it feasible? Is it something we can uh, we can implement within a, a particular time frame? What are the expected outcomes? To assess all these different parts of these economic policies, right? Before we come up with an assessment of whether a single policy is a is is going to contribute to public welfare or not. Um, and so it seems to me that you know it's 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 uh, unproductive. They uh, on the face of it, all IMF policies are horrible for 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 X reason and all you know government policies are great for another reason right I mean there needs to be um, uh, scrutiny on whatever policies in implemented and I think here that that really requires national debate and you know, policy discussion um, it's it's uh, it's a criticism of the IMF that often occurs because there's scapegoating of the IMF when you know government and and national leaders are, are faced with this challenge of uh, taking their countries through an economic reform program because they're in distress their countries are in distress and um, some of these uh, policies are, are, are tough to implement in a country there are political economy reasons why they may not want to be implemented in this country um, or why our leaders may not want to implement these these uh, so the IMF ends up being scapegoated a lot of the time. I think it's important to take a step back and look objectively at the policies being proposed and, and then uh, assess the policies on their merits as opposed to, oh, this policy is good or bad because A or B, uh, well, the IMF is saying it or because the government is saying it. Thanks, Amita. Um, that's interesting and definitely actually leads um, to like questions that I wanted to ask. But since Amar has joined us, 
I think maybe we do that. Um, let's kind of ask Amal to respond to some of the points that you uh, raised. Um, Amal, just to cover in case you weren't able to hear the first part, we were kind of talking about what led, uh, what factors led Pakistan to um, go to the IMF in the first place? Why did they seek IMF intervention? And, you know, just to reflect a bit about the pushback from uh, both countries about the role that the IMF plays and why you think that is. So if you could just reflect on that. Uh, thank you uh, for the question and apologies for the slight uh, technical issues. Okay, so Pakistan really has, a, I would say, perennial IMF problem. We've gone to the IMF about 23 times in the last 50 years. So that's basically every two and a half to three years. We just go to the IMF, come back with a new program and start repeating the same mistakes again. Uh, if I look back at newspaper archives from exactly 50 years back, they're talking about the same things, increasing agricultural productivity, increasing taxes, the same things, but not much has really changed. So is this really the IMF's problem or the problem lies with somewhere else? And I will fully agree with uh, Amrita here that uh, it's more about doing structural reforms. There's a very, I would say, rent-seeking elite capture kind of economy has been created, which uh, doesn't have to be there. And because of that, we keep we have to continue going back to the IMF on one pretext or another. Because what, what's happening is our dependence on imported goods. Because when as trade increases, uh, imports also increase. So when imports increase, we need some dollars to pay for those imports. So it's very easy to increase imports, but it's very difficult to increase exports. So I guess this is what's with the Pakistan, with Sri Lanka. It's very easy to drive up consumption through imports. So let's say if I want to target a 5% or a 6% GDP growth rate, the easiest way out is to just drive it through consumption and that consumption can be financed through imports. Imports can be financed through borrowed dollars. But a time comes when the dollars dry out. A time comes when we cannot really pay for it anymore. Like in the case of Sri Lanka, we can see almost half or about, I would say, 45% of its total debt is to commercial lenders. So eventually someone has to pay back those loans. And now they're being restructured. Similarly, in the case of Pakistan, our foreign debt has been consistently increasing. As, as a percentage of GDP, it has somewhat remained stable, but as a percentage of total expenses, as a percentage of total budget, the debt servicing continues to increase. So again, we need to keep servicing those debts, but because the structure of the economy is such that taxes are not being collected, even if they are being collected, they are being collected from a very specific carved out segment of the population. And uh, I would say about 70% of the population or the, let's say, the economic sectors are literally tax-free. So that just creates more burden on whoever is paying the tax and that eventually lets, leads to more adverse incentives. So yes, because we are not able to fix these structural problems over the last, I would say, five decades in the case of Pakistan and I would say similar time period for Sri Lanka, we have to go back to the IMF every now and then. And it is because of this we are looking at some kind of economic stagnancy and we're not able to really attain sustainable growth where we grow for a few years, or let's say 5% plus 6%. And then we just 
get to a stop due to the classic nature of the boom bust cycles so yeah this is basically the problem it's a problem that needs to be sorted before we can really go out there and blame the imf for it thanks amar um amita like kind of following on um from what you were saying about conditionality um imf has kind of made in sri lanka's case they've spoken several times about debt sustainability as a key kind of pressure for the for staff level agreement um so you know what what exactly does that mean and what does it what will a plan to make sri lanka's debt sustainable look like um what's it going to entail and can we learn um or take pointers from other countries for example pakistan of course but even countries like zambia and lebanon in kind of crafting um what our own response would look like yeah so um question raisa i think i mean yes the imf has come in and, and they've started talking about debt sustainability debt sustainability is something that sri lankan uh, economic policy makers uh, should have been thinking about prior to the imf's entrance into sri lanka prior to these talks even um what it means is uh basically very simply we need a way to generate enough revenue so that we can uh make sure that we're paying back our debt obligations so i already mentioned you know our debt to gdp ratio was about 120% and in 2021 about uh 2/3 of our government revenue was just was being used just to make uh interest payments on our on our debt obligations that that's a large percentage of the debt of um, of our revenue going towards servicing debts right and so creating a path towards debt sustainability would have to uh some way or another go back to addressing these structural weaknesses in our economy in sri lanka um you know the problems are you know consist of the low tax to gdp ratio that i mentioned a long term decline in revenue collection since the 1990s um corruption we are ranked about 102 of 180 countries in the corruption perception index high barriers to trade inefficient public expenditure i mean this has been talked a lot about a lot in sri lanka we we um we allocate a, a large percentage of our budget to uh, uh to the military and this is during a period in which we are at peace and we just need to be making more efficient uh deci- making decisions about where to allocate our budget that will actually lead to to better growth right so we have inefficient public expenditure there are high costs of doing business and we we've had a a, a very um a weak export export performance so we have we have all these structural weaknesses in our economy which we need to address to take us on that path towards debt sustainability and of course we can we we must learn from the experiences of other countries um especially in any kind of design program that that you embark on it's it's very important to look at Uh, policies have played out in other countries they can give you uh, that that can give you a very good sense of what secondary impacts these policies are, uh, might you know um uh might cause or or what might have but at the end of the day like every economy is unique um there are unique constraints to growth for every economy and we need to 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 be uh looking at these comparative examples within the context of what is possible in sri lanka but also what is likely to unlock growth for our country um uh so i i guess i don't know i guess that that um may answer part of it but you know like our economy is very closely linked to our, our polity and our institutions our political culture 
Um, you know, in the last two decades, we've seen this exclusionary ethno-nationalism that has led to war and brain drain um, and in institutional decay, right? Like we've, we've seen um, reduced parliamentary oversight of public finance and like tons of political instability in our country. So all of these things are linked and some of these things are unique to Sri Lanka. It's not something, you know, um, that perhaps uh, a, 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 a South Asian neighbor or some other country that has gone through a debt um issue or crisis uh, can can provide the solutions for us for you know so some of this is some uh, is is very much linked to our own political culture and institutional culture and our but of course we can and we should look at other countries for um, you know guidance about what could go wrong and how these policies might interact with our economy and and um, uh, and so on thanks Amita um Amar, I also wanted to talk to you uh, specifically in Pakistan's case, you know, the discussions around IMF have kind of centered around, for example, the removal of fuel and electricity subsidies. And, you know, in the Sri Lankan context, there's also been a lot of discussion about price caps. So just wanted to kind of, um, if you could reflect on that. And also, is there like any kind of a plan in place to protect um, for example, the most vulnerable who might find themselves unable to pay for fuel and electricity. So, yeah, one of the major points uh, in the discussions with IMF, and in fact, even before the discussions, when the fuel subsidies were announced, a lot of quarters were saying, you know, these are wrong, these are distortionary, and I would even go ahead to say that these were also, let's say, more pro-rich than rather than being pro-poor. Why? Because a lot of fuel is basically consumed by vehicles. Uh, I mean, uh, so what's really happening is we're basically subsidizing transport of people who have cars because they're the bigger users of biggest users of fuel. So what's happening there is even if you're a guy who's driving, a, let's say, an SUV or a 1600cc automobile, uh, the government is effectively subsidizing you. I'll give a personal example here. I drove from Slava to Karachi and uh, the government essentially subsidized me by about, let's say, 20,000 rupees and by not charging me the fair market price of fuel. So this just, we, we can multiply that and the sum is fairly large, so much so that the Pakistan was funding about 100 rupees uh, in monthly subsidies. Those 100 billion rupees could have been reallocated to more pro-impact, pro-developmental schemes with a much greater impact rather than simply just burning them up in smooth fuel. Now, what's happening is when we have such distortionary policies in place, this also has an impact on our external account. Because when we're subsidizing fuel, the prices are not changing. People are not consuming less fuel. In fact, they might just be consuming more fuel because there is an expectation that the fuel prices might increase in future and they may have to ration it going forward. So what's happening is that you have to import more fuel at a higher international price. This has an effect on your external balance as well, eventually leading to a greater current account deficit. So this just leads to, I would say, it's more of like a, let's say a domino effect where a subsidy of subsidizing good, which price price of which is increasing in the international market you're essentially incentivizing more demand here 
so you're trying to buy more of that same good at a much higher price just bad economics bad math and all of that a way to handle it now one argument that's given is that you know what it's there to protect the poor it's there to protect the more vulnerable segments well there are other ways to ensure that the most vulnerable segments uh get you know get the right kind of uh, let's say payments or the right kind of support in this environment so what is being done now is while the subsidies have been removed an amount equivalent to the rough uh, household subsidy that they were uh, that each household was getting has been allocated through to something which is called the bisp or the sas program it's basically cash transfer program to roughly 16 million vulnerable households in pakistan now what's happening here is instead of just subsidizing fuel for everyone we use some of that cash in the pot and redirect that through straight cash transfers to the most vulnerable households yes this is not really a very uh, precise way to go about it because we're still missing a lot of households but this is at least non distortionary and uh, it just uh, it's more targeted in nature rather than you know just incentivizing more demand of a commodity which is basically increasing in prices in the global market thanks amar that actually um leads into the question that i was going to ask next um which is kind of on targeting um well yeah you kind of mentioned this so i think i'm going to go back to you briefly amar before going to amita um this has come up in sri lanka as well and uh you know this idea of social protection protecting the most vulnerable and um the imf has said that there is a commitment to do that and in sri lanka as well there's this uh discussion about what mechanism can be used um as you've already mentioned there is a kind of um there are kind of problems in kind of identifying who is really going to be benefit from these um and there are families who are kind of falling outside of uh, that identified group um given this reality what do you think could be done to kind of reach more of these people you know is there anything being done is there room for more uh flexibility i guess is what i'm asking uh yes there is room for flexibility again one needs to be really innovative here rather than following a very uh traditional bureaucratic approach to things so w- what's happening here is about 16 million household payment the subsidy amount you know that roughly that's about equal to 2000 2500 rupees an additional amount is being uh, targeted as well now let's say what we what we're trying to do here let's say the objective is objective function here is to support those who ride motorcycles now motorcycles are normally ridden by household which are middle to lower middle class and uh, let's say we want to support them how would we do that one way is to Pakistan already has a fairly extensive and identity card system which is chip based so through technology and it is possible to turn that cnic into a fuel card now what's happening is the government can simply deposit let's say x liters of fuel every month whether that's 10 liters whether it's 5 liters doing some math there and anyone with a bike again the registration data is in place we know who has a bike motor license we know how many motorcycles have been sold through some iteration through connection of 
various departments and agencies, it is possible to have a national fuel rollout plan in place. So this is more directed. If the real objective here is to support, to allow affordability of fuel, this can be done. This, again, this is not beyond uh, the, let's say, ambit of reality. The technology is in place. The agencies are in place. They just need to connect together and talk to each other. So, uh, again, a lot of things can be done in addition to this. But then again, even then, there will always be some households, there will always be some people who may be able to make the cut. So, let's say in the case of motorcycles, not every motorcycle rider has a motorcycle license. I think uh, we all know that. So, how do we target those? So, there will always be some households, some individuals who will fall through the cracks. And maybe this can be an exercise in ensuring that they finally get formalized, they finally get licenses, and they finally become part of that net. So, again, it's a very complex exercise which involves multiple stakeholders rather than just a very, it, it, as I said earlier, it requires effort rather than just, you know, it's easier to say, you know, just let's put a price cap on fuel. I mean, it just requires an executive decision. But going and looking at data and filtering and ensuring a sustainable plan in place, that requires a lot of effort and uh, not many people are willing to put that effort in. Thanks, Amar. Um, Amita, yeah, I, I, my question to you was similar as well. You know, given that um, the IMF has been saying that they are committed to kind of helping to protect um, the most poor and vulnerable as part of their program, there hasn't really been a lot of detail about how exactly that's going to happen. And there's been some debate um, in the public domain about um, for example, cash transfers, um, and given the kind of inefficiency that you spoke about in terms, you know, existing mechanisms, um, how do you think that can be circumvented? Um, thanks, Raisa. I mean, again, this is a very complex uh, policy, you know, that we'll have to think about, like in in depth. You know, the fact that our current uh, social uh, social welfare scheme, the Samurdi, is extremely politicized, as well as other welfare schemes, um, and that they've been ineffective is is quite well known. Um, and reforming it, I think there was an attempt to reform, um, you know, the targeting, the weak target Samurdi and other welfare payments uh, a while back um, through a policy that was gazetted, a policy that actually, I think, um, you know, targeted the female heads of households um, in, in terms of who would receive the payment. Um, but uh, as far as I know, nothing was operationalized. Um, and uh, as uh, Amma also mentioned, Sri Lanka has has taken the easy way out in terms of proposing sort of uh, price controls on fuel and electricity. Um, of course, with electricity, it's easier to do to, ma to make it uh, progressive, but uh, fuel subsidies uh, are quite regressive, right? So um, they're, they're basically methods of subsidizing uh, the poor and their, uh, the, the rich and, and, um, and uh, uh, they're quite anti-poor, right? In, in terms of if you're if you're choosing between a fuel subsidy and a cash transfer, um, but uh, the the design, the particular design of the samurdi, how to how to target uh, more effectively is something that actually requires a lot of work and and a lot of thinking um, around uh, what has been going wrong and why it's being politicized um, and how how we can improve that distribution mechanism. I think um, you know we can't really comment on what the IMF is proposed. Nothing is out there in the public domain yet. 
Um, but um, uh, I think those who have studied these social transfer systems in more depth may be able to better comment on what exactly needs to be done to improve that uh, that distribution system. Thanks for that, Amita. Um, yeah, I guess next, um, I I originally was going to ask about for us to chat about the history of the impact of the IMF on like politics and the economy. But I think before that, maybe we should also talk about the model um, of development that it kind of puts forward. Um, and I'm going to ask a slightly loaded question to both speakers. Um, do you think that the model of economic development that it uh, puts forward is rigged against developing economies? Maybe we can start off with Amar and then Amita can respond. Uh, okay. I think IMF is, as we say, it's more of a lender of the last resort. You go to the IMF when you really need to go to the IMF. You're out of cash, you're out of fuel, you're out of groceries, and you just need to get the ball rolling. And this is when you go to the IMF to go to the IMF earlier than that. So that, you know, you can just put your house in order like Pakistan does every three years. And uh, Sri Lanka missed the board in this case. So this is it. So when you are going to the lender of last resort, obviously it asks you to fulfill some tough conditions. And those tough conditions are mostly uh, for your own benefit. Like increasing tax revenues, that's for your own benefit. Ensuring you have higher exports, that's for your own benefit. Ensuring that you have a more, I would say, leaner government structure. Uh, that's for the country's own benefit. So what we do is we about these things and then just start focusing on what doesn't really work for the country or what's maybe anti-people in the short term but actually benefits the country in the long term. So that's why IMF gets a pretty bad rep. In terms of development, uh, I think every country has a different trajectory. Every country has a different model. And uh, so we can't really say whatever the IMF is prescribing is really going to work uh, for the country or not. What is important is that the country finally gets out of the IMF program and just goes on its own developmental trajectory. Whatever that is, uh, East Asian economies, uh, you've got South Korea, you've got Taiwan, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, all had the IMF during the Asian crisis. But following that, all of them just reoriented themselves did the necessary structural reform, and everyone has a different trajectory of growth. So I think what's important here is to get that funding, get that house in order, not just get the house in order so that, you know, you're fine till the next electoral cycle, and then whoever comes next has to go to the IMF again. Get the house in order and then just pursue it your own uh, developmental strategy. For example, in the case of Pakistan, where is the, does the comparative advantage lie? That's in agriculture. Now, IMF will never, I, I, I'm IMF really commenting on improving uh, agriculture or trade or exporting agriculture produce, but that is something where Pakistan has a comparative advantage. Maybe this is what we need to look at. So we can all pick and choose our own development strategy, but to get from point A to point B, from where we get on the development trajectory, we need that. IMF bridge financing says that we can get to that point. Thanks, Amar. And Amita, do you want to reflect on the um, same question? 
I mean, I, I suppose uh, I'm in agreement with Amma, right? Like, so it has different engagements with different countries. And even in its history of engagement with Sri Lanka, uh, it's been influenced by different types of thinking, right? So, uh, you know, economic policy is, it's it's like any other kind of theoretical or like any other discipline which is constantly developing um, as time goes by and as, you know, certain experiments fail and certain experiments succeed. Um, and the IMF thinking in terms of development strategy and policy is going to be shaped by uh, the the kind of developments in that field as well, right? So the IMF is not a static body. Um, it has a history and, you know, it, it has failures in the past and it's going to be evolving and developing based on that. So its development strategy with uh, is going to be evolving over time and it's going to not have the same development strategy uh, in Pakistan that it will have in uh, Sri Lanka. Aside from that, of course, you know, the, the, the government itself is, is um, instrumental in terms of negotiating the policies um, that are required, right, within, uh, within the structural adjustment program that may eventually be proposed. So Sri Lankan policymakers have a, a critical role to play in influencing the nature of our uh, engagement with the IMF and the nature of the structural uh, uh, reform uh, package, right? So um, it's not that we can we can say that this is a IMF imposed program. Actually, if you look at some of the recommendations that the IMF um, is likely to make in Sri Lanka, uh, these are these are policies that have actually um, been researched and developed uh, by Sri Lankan economists and by Sri Lankans who have um, you know come up with certain reforms that they think uh, need to be implemented in the country to improve our growth. Um, I'll give you one uh, example, which is on uh, female labor force participation, right? So um, the IMF recommended that, that Sri Lanka grow um, or uh, improve uh, its female labor force participation. Uh, but even before the IMF made that recommendation, we had local economists, Dr. Roshan Pereira, Dilani Gunavardhana, Prati Senavratna, Ramni Gunatilaka, all these female economists actually uh, designing ways and, and thinking about this problem and designing ways in which we could uh, eliminate barriers to female labor force participation. And then the IMF comes in and recommends it. That doesn't necessarily make this policy an IMF policy, right? It's not an IMF demanding that the country needed anyway. And that is now being, you know, the, the, the political will and the pressure to, to actually go through with it is being provided by the IMF in this instance. So, um, you know, like, I, I, I would take a step back and think about what policies are being recommended and whether they actually fit into this kind of idea that the IMF has a some kind of developmental ideology. Um, and I would, I would push back a little bit on that idea. Um, because a lot of the reforms that the IMF is proposing, at least in Sri Lanka's case, are reforms that we should have implemented ourselves, right? Thanks, Amita. Um, I also wanted to, um, as I was saying earlier, maybe um, reflect a bit on the impacts that, you know, as we mentioned, both Pakistan and Sri Lanka have gone to the IMF before, um, what the impact has been um, on the economy and, you know, people as a result of past programs. Uh, maybe, Amita, you could start off and then we can go back to Amar. Okay, so our first program with the IMF was in 1965. And since then, we've had about 16 different programs with the IMF. Now, this 
program that we're currently negotiating is a little bit different because it's the first time Sri Lanka is having um, a three-way agreement with uh, that involves creditors. It's also the first time we're seeing an SLFP, SLPP government formulating economic policy, right? But, you know, the IMF has been part of our economic history. Um, I think in it's very closely tied to our attempts to liberalize. Um, in the 1950s, we had a very closed economy and we, we had uh, lots of import restrictions and we couldn't impose any more import restrictions because the economy was so closed. Um, but at the time, um, you know, we had a finance minister, N.M. Pereira, in 1964, who, tra- who, who attempted to, to engage the IMF, who attempted to liberalize a little bit. Um, and then later, J.R. Dai Wardner would come in, implement open economy policies after the UNP's 1977 election victory. At that stage, uh, too, um, the IMF was approached but the IMF was actually approached after Sri Lanka, well, after J.R. Jayawardena decided that he wanted to go on this um, on this uh, process of liberalisation, right? So he actually approached an Indian uh, economist uh, to, dis- to to receive advice for our liberalisation attempts uh, before he um, before the election victory of the UNP and before um, before they they actually attempted these liberalisation reforms with the IMF as a development partner. So the IMF has come into um, our economic history and and has been you know a development partner as we liberalised both in the first and second wave of liberalisation reforms that which were under Premadasa. Um, but um, I, I think, you know, again, I think it's, you know, it's we shouldn't be giving so much credit to the IMF in terms of the policies that we've implemented. When the IMF has come in, it's it's come in because we have approached the IMF, because we've um, engaged them as a development partner. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, I, I think it to, to do so actually to, to attribute our economic policies and our economic decision making um, and and the trajectory of our economy to the IMF and to international and to the West um, is actually just a form of reorientalization, right? By giving credit to um, you know like international institutions, the West, uh, for you know for thoughts, ideas, and policies that are actually the result of competing local interests. Um, so we're reducing and, and in some ways homogenizing these like local actors. Um, we shouldn't be doing. I think um, that actually is is counterproductive to think of it that way. But, uh, uh, yeah, the IMF has come in and, and it has had positive impacts as well, right? So um, I think uh, there were some econometric studies done that show that uh, IMF programs in Sri Lanka have actually improved growth um, and and um, our output has, 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 has um, uh, been positively impacted as a result of IMF programs. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we often will implement IMF programs when the economy is in, right also. Um, so it's, uh, its legacy in Sri Lanka is not necessarily all bad. Amar, do you want to respond? Uh, Mia, uh, uh, okay, so what I'll say is, again, we've been to the IMF every two and a half years for in the last 50 years. So what's really happening is we do the same things every time. We go to the IMF, they tell us, you need to do this, this, this. For example, the last time they said, you know what, just make an independent central bank. They're like, sure, you know, let's just make a law, make an independent central bank. We did that. Now, one condition done, we go back to the IMF again because another condition we did not really fulfill in in its true spirit. Uh, in the 90s, there were some severe power issues. It was, uh, you know, IMF suggested and other multilateral suggested that we should go for a certain power. 
program we did but on the road we faced problems with that as well so you know it's it's a mixed bag here we can't really say whether the imf policy have really assisted pakistan in uh, getting on some kind of an economic trajectory because no we didn't really get anywhere largely because we did not implement those policies or those prescriptions in true spirit so till the imf program stays we just say you know what just give us the money we will do whatever you want us to do the moment we get the money we just start doing something else till the time we we need more money so this kind of uh, i would say juvenile behavior is uh, does not allow any policy prescription to take root so and imf being imf i don't know i think we've got a, after argentina I think, i think pakistan is the second more popular or most frequent customer of imf actually we convince them they gave us money and we repeat the same mistakes again and again so i would say no there haven't been any major policy prescriptions that have allowed growth because frankly no serious growth has happened in pakistan over the last i would say 20 years anyway thanks amar we'd um, like to open it up to questions so if you um, do have any do a uh, request for the mic shubanga do you want to start us off by asking a question maybe uh yeah sure uh um yeah no it's been a really interesting and i think rich conversation so uh, but i also wanted to inject a bit of politics into the conversation and you know um i mean for example the given the frequency with which these two countries have been going to the imf clearly it's clear that there are serious structural issues in the economies of, of the two countries uh, but these structures are also presumably created politically right and the political conflict between people of different interests different ideologies different material you know interests and and beliefs so um i mean do you uh, and question is to to both of our speakers um do you worry that uh, you know uh, the spaces where imf but also actually other international financial institutions uh, operate and the spaces where uh, national governments uh, negotiate and interact with these institutions are spaces which tend to empower um certain political uh, uh spectrum or people of certain ideological space or or uh, economic beliefs and uh, you know for example perhaps an economist more than a representative of the plantation union right um and and there is there are real political tensions between them but they might want and desire and and um even if even if the economic trajectory or or uh, decision making is to be uh, is you know is something that is in under the great purview of people within the field and and um, at you know politically uh, and within the elected officials but do you see and do you worry that you know apart from imf conditionalities taking the policy one direction or the other and influencing the economies in one way just from the point of view of empowering certain political forces more than others um that's one question and the other very quick question is um uh, i'm since i'm not any an economist so i i don't know this very clearly but on the question of targeted uh, benefits so you know um giving certain kind of subsidies or benefits to certain population um i feel i think that's called means testing um i was just curious what the state of research on that is because I mean, based on what little I know, it seems that 
um, at least in advanced economies, means testing has uh, shown certain problems and that universal benefits seem to be a more efficient way on the longer run. Um, just because the, the processes that you know vulnerable people have to go through while accessing benefits tend to, in fact, kind of invert the process, right? So I was just curious if there's any interesting uh, work or research or, or what your views are on, on, on that. That's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I suppose on the latter question, you're asking whether um, we should play favor like a sort of UBI or like a universal social transfer or something over a targeted social assistance program. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah, like I'm curious if, it's, if targeted systems impose a greater burden on on people who need it the most, you know, everything from accessing state services, bureaucracies, and given the kind of hierarchies we have in our countries in terms of, uh, you know, accessing agents of the state. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we would have to really, again, carefully look at the existing social transfer programs and look at things like, oh, you know, what percentage is being leaked, uh, how much under coverage is there, what is the burden to the individuals who are, um, you know, uh, supposed to receive these social transfers in terms of like collection time or like, you know, are there people who are left out because and this is under coverage, people who are left out because, um, you know, they can't make it to the office or they can't uh, write whatever um, form is necessary to, to collect those social um, transfers. I think we... We would need to just sit down and like do the math around that and see who is getting left out and what the disadvantages are of the social transfer program versus the um, the benefits of just you know providing the social assistance program universally without any targeting at all, right? Um, so obviously, with the, the line to you're going to be providing social assistance or social transfers to to individuals who maybe don't need those social transfers you might be you, you will be uh, providing um, money to somebody who um, earns a, a sizable income and so there is that is just wastage but we need to see if the the, the total amount of that wastage or that uh, throwing away of your money uh, is is lower than the wastage in the other case I think that's just for me it's just a, a question of of doing the math and seeing what the costs and benefits are uh, either system and to my knowledge I don't think in Sri Lanka we've done that yet um, so there's way to assess so I mean that's just the question that I uh, that I uh, remember of your long questions Shubanga you might have to repeat the first part again uh, no the first was a more kind of a generic question about uh, you know do uh, and you know just beyond the specifics of the conditionalities uh, do the engagement between um, IMF and the government create spaces where uh, people with, say, liberal ideas about economics or um, open market economy or privatization, commodity, you know, uh, state-owned enterprise, you know, just putting it very kind of specifically, do they end up having more stay in that process than, say, people with opposite views? And, you know, I'm not getting into the discussion of which is the right economic policy at a particular time for the country, but purely in terms of uh, the groups, the ideas, the political forces that are empowered, 
in interactions with international financial institutions, regardless of those institutions' own policies. I mean, I guess that the question I'm thinking about is, uh, does it make the economic decision making more democratic or not? And if, if that's if that's the worry, obviously we can't expect kind of ideal case of perfection, but you know, is is there some concern that we need to have? Well, I think, you know, if we're looking at Sri Lanka's economy, right, um, what I would characterize as a crony capitalist um, economy, um, a lot of the benefits uh, of the output of our economy actually accrue to a limited set of individuals who are highly politically connected, um, who are pretty wealthy, who, you know, operate using licenses and um operate monopolies which give them you know kind of uh, an advantage there's very little competition in our economy and that means is that a lot of individuals get shut out of business um you know like the cost of doing business actually is really high and it's higher uh, in in this instance in the sense it's higher for um individuals trying to to uh, enter um into this space or start businesses uh, there are all these monopolies and distribution and so on that that shut out um, individuals. Um, and I think uh, with regards to the proposals that the IMF has proposed in Sri Lanka, um, from you know the tax proposals, which I am hoping are, are more progressive, to the kinds of proposals that would generally increase market competition, I think what those proposals would do is actually increase the amount of competition in our markets and increase the number of those who are actually able to substantially contribute to our economy. Um, uh, a lot of the price controls and you know the import substitution policies that we have today actually are, are huge barriers to to new entrants in, into into industry. And um, I think actually these pro market reforms. Would get a, get rid of a lot of these distortions and open up spaces that um, that would make our economy in, in some ways more democratic. Thanks. Um, maybe Amar. Um, I think I would uh, fully agree with Amita here. Just one thing: yes, the orientation of the IMF is large market so yes they would want privatization they would want a leaner government they would want soes to be completely privatized so that is the case and they mostly deal with the finance minister who is mostly an elected member of the parliament or eventually becomes an elected member of one of the member of one of the houses and the senate governors so yes technically it is a democratic process if the government is democratically elected again that's more of a political issue than anything else. Secondly, with regards to uh, the question of means testing, we do work on a national poverty scorecard. And uh, yeah, it's not really the best or the uh, or a perfect process. But then again, there are tweaks that need to be done. And its scope is consistently being expanded. As we all know, there is no perfect poverty model out there it's always a challenge to ensure that people don't really slip from the cracks thanks um yeah so once again does anybody have any question they'd like to ask if so um please do request for the mic and um you can ask your question okay since people <laughs> 
aren't really asking questions. I do have a follow-up that I wanted to ask, um, kind of following on from the question on um, social transfers. You know, yeah, there's this, there's this been this kind of ongoing debate about um, what Shibanga mentioned about uh, universal kind of uh, transfers or, you know, kind of doing more targeted interventions. Um, And I just wanted to kind of question, you know, given, particularly in Sri Lanka's case, given that this is a crisis situation. um, So, for example, I think there's statistics showing that around um, 60% of people are having to change uh, their take. Um, either to like reduce portions and we're having you know reports of people skipping meals already as well and it's expected that it's going to get even worse from here so given that you know um, do you think that there's just room for more flexibility particularly on this social transfers issue and particularly given that there is going to be a bit of a crisis situation I think the Prime Minister has specifically said in August there's likely to be a food crisis. Uh, Amita, do you want to kind of reflect on that? Um, so, okay, so first of all, like, I'm I'm a fan of UBIs. I, I, if, if we could get UBIs out, that would be great. But I guess the, the more pressing question is, like, how would that be funded, right? Like, because we're an economically, financially constrained country right now, because we have so little in terms of dollars and um, um, in, in terms of general revenue coming into the country, we need to make cost-effective decisions at every stage. Um, I, uh, again, I think I, we would just have to, to do the math to see if like a targeted social um, transfer scheme uh, results in more wastage or is more cost-effective or less cost-effective um, than... A UBI, and I don't. Again, I don't think that has been done yet. But all of this has to be, uh, you know, it has to it has to come with a for how do we get that aid into the country? How do we get? Um, how do we how do we fund this? How do we fund um, these like you know ambitious projects? Uh, uh, but uh, and and you know, does that align with uh, a kind of a, a growth? Uh, project going forward or will it be uh, uh, co-opted at some point by a populist government that um, that 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 uses this policy going forward to impede our growth in the future i i don't have the answers to that um, again i think it's something we have to to work out um, but i mean i, I don't know i, I guess uh, amma might have something else to add to that um, I think Amit, the only way to fund these UBS by increasing taxes. That, that that's pretty much it. The problem, the common problem between both countries is lacks of tax generation. Uh, taxes being collected from a very few sources. The tax net needs to be expanded once the revenue starts flowing in. Uh, the UBIs and the, like this for SAS in Pakistan can be funded through that revenue. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. There's no doubt that uh, Sri Lanka's tax uh, taxation system needs to change. Um, we have a very regressive uh, tax system. Uh, we we uh, don't tax incomes, and um, you know we we have uh, GST taxes and so on that 
actually are really anti-poor, right? Um, and so uh, I think there's no doubt that our tax system needs to be uh, changed and needs to be more progressive so that that redistribution, that revenue collection can happen. We've faced, uh, I think I mentioned this before, like since the 1990s, our revenue collection has just decreased um, for, again, political economy reasons because of uh, populism and um, exemptions being given to businesses and um, and the wealthy. So that definitely needs to change. There's no doubt about that, um, I, I think. Uh, but in the short term, um, I'm not entirely sure what can be done except for, you know, uh, continuing to, to seek assistance from uh, multilateral and bilateral partners. Hopefully the acceleration of an IMF program or going through this IMF program quickly um, will unlock funding faster for us. But again, that depends uh, on political will. I think Amita, slightly, I think the... Uh I would like to just comment here that uh, the UBI payments need to be paid in local currency. So that's the Lankan rupee. And yeah. what IMF and multilaterals are going to give are dollars. So it is entirely possible to, you know, like what we did in Pakistan. Uh, uh, we just recently imposed a super tax on certain corporates, banks, and those who ever had uh, profitability greater than X million rupees or whatever. So... Yes, the IMF and multilateral funding can provide the dollars, which can bridge the current account deficit and external balance of payments. But a UBI can certainly fund it through more tax generation in the Lankan rupee in the local currency. So that will actually, I'm sure when the IMF uh, things comes out, when the details come out, one of the proposals will be increasing taxes and then eventually redirecting those as a UBI. Agreed, agreed. I think I was, um, I think Raisa was talking about perhaps the Prime Minister's statement about food. Um, and a lot of these are imported in Sri Lanka. So uh, I guess I was thinking about that as well, drugs and all of that, which our bilateral partners have been providing to some extent. But um, yes, a, a tax system will definitely help with a UBI provision. Thanks. Um, we do have a, a couple of... Um, requests um either lubna or kantasami you can ask your question now uh, thank you given the mic yeah but it's kantasami uh, here uh, thank you uh, amar uh, uh, sorry i couldn't hear you uh i hope i'm not interrupting anybody because uh, uh the voice wasn't there and i couldn't hear anybody i just heard the uh, my name right now I, I hope i'm not interrupting anybody no, you can go ahead. Uh, all right. I just wanted to ask a question from Mr. Amar. First of all, thank you very much for giving me the mic and this opportunity to ask this question from Mr. Amar. I just wanted to know from Mr. Amar that uh, we know recently that we had um, a new government in Pakistan. And that government has been to IMF repeatedly. But I don't think that they have been able to secure a deal. Uh, to support their uh, to to support our economy, which is litmus uh, at the moment. So, what is the current situation, and why do you think that Pakistan has not been able to do this deal with IMF? What are the obstacles on their way, and how can it be sorted out? Uh, yeah, thank you, Lubna. Uh, 
it's mostly due to i would say there are multiple preconditions that need to be sorted before uh, the program can go through one of the key conditions was increasing uh, actually eliminating fuel subsidies another condition was increasing taxes on fuels so that more revenue can be generated so that has been sorted there were a couple of more conditions increasing income taxes now the, the budget that they presented they did not really increase those so they had to go back again wasted a few days i would say a month on that and then eventually now i feel major conditions have been met uh and we may see the program i'm not positive about it but we may we may see the program continue within the next few weeks because major conditions have been met regarding uh, fuel subsidies being eliminated taxes being in and taxes being enhanced but uh, i heard uh, amar i read as well that there are two more prerequisite conditions that IMF has asked for and one of that is that uh, the government of Pakistan had uh, made some amendments to their accountability the IMF asked for that and then the second thing is this that it was in the papers yesterday that the during this slight uh, package uh, is it uh, what do you what do you say about this Okay so so the first question being yes there is a thing regarding the anti amendment in the corruption law as well i am actually increased uh, sorry, let's I'm say putting it now yeah uh, am i audible now hi you're audible for me okay perfect okay so yes the imf has i would say doubled down on uh, anti corruption laws and the same was done in the case of uh another country as well a few months back and they want to do that for pakistan and i guess uh, i believe that's the right thing to do uh, to do and uh, before if we want to get the imf program we may have to reverse that amendment or unless the government team can actually negotiate and uh, you know push their way through like they've been doing for a while now uh, i didn't get the second question if you can repeat that i had some problem with the, my connection uh i think um I think Lubna's a listener now. Um, maybe um, we can, whilst she's coming back, we can uh, take the question from her. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, as somebody who who's in the diaspora, originally from uh, Sri Lanka, and uh, I just want to ask, uh, I could see uh, from afar, I can see a um, a few parallels in between Pakistan and Sri Lanka here. Um, uh, religious extremism and uh, militarization and also ethno nationalism being the root causes of the uh, um, economic crisis uh, can you see any parallel i mean you might have covered it in the uh, sorry i've only <laughs> joined within the last car, um, an hour or so um, sorry half an hour or so i haven't had a chance to listen to all of it um you might have covered it um would you be able to, would somebody be able to enlighten us on the parallels between the two please you might have done it uh and um and is that is those things that are causing problem uh, is it going to change any soon um uh that yes i was hoping somebody could answer that please yeah amita do you want to go first Yeah, sure. I can answer this one. I think. Well, I can answer this one at least from a Sri Lankan perspective. 
Um, I see uh, Sri Lanka's economic crisis today as being extremely linked to the ethno-nationalist kind of exclusionary political approach that the government has had um, in, in, in quite a few ways, right? So if you look at our, like our economic crisis didn't happen overnight. Um, it's been the result of decades-long kind of economic mismanagement. And um, it also, you know, it uh, one of the, the largest, uh, expenses that Sri Lanka has had to to um, you know uh, incur is the expense that it's spent on the civil war, right? And the multiple expenses that it, it has to accrue that accrues to it as a result of us having terrible uh, social policy or terrible like um, uh, po- policies in 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 terms of creating harmony between our different ethnic groups. Um, and so for me. Uh, it, I mean, this this failure, uh, this failure or inability to create um, good economic uh, social policy, has led to brain drain. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, of the Tamil minority leaving the country, Muslims leaving the country post East attack, um, and you know, post anti-Muslim hate campaigns. Um, it's led to a civil war, and these are things that are not edifiable, right? Like when you talk about. Um, our levels or our GDP growth and so on, we can we can put numbers down and we can kind of, um, we can say, oh, this has led to um, a loss of this number of jobs or this has led to a shrinkage of GDP uh, of this amount. But with um, the kinds of, uh, with these kinds of phenomenon, a civil war, uh, brain and so on, it's harder to put a number down. But um, the, the phenomenon is so large and, and the consequences are so uh, costly that to me at least there's no doubt that ethno-nationalism has contributed to um, the economic crisis that we face today. Um, and, you know, that it continues to play an important role in um, in, in various, like, um, logical inconsistencies that guide the way we make economic decisions. So, for example, um, the fact that we have a hugely oversized military and that we spend so much uh, on on um, our armed forces when in a, in a time of supposed peace, right? It doesn't make sense, but it's a result of um, perhaps a certain ethno-nationalism, a certain uh, persistent feeling of insecurity um, uh, from the majority community and a failure of social uh, policy, I would say. So to me, at least, uh, you know, the, 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 the causes of the ethnic, I mean, the causes of the economic crisis are very linked to Poor social policy, and um, and they continue to play a role in in um, uh, certain allocative uh, inefficiencies that we, we see in our economy today. So they continue to um, contribute to e- uh, economic uh, problems in the country. Well, that's from a Sri Lankan perspective, though. I don't know what Amma will have to say. I think you can add probably to that. Yeah, I would agree with Amita. Her similar problems here in oversized military. Uh, bad social policies, and more importantly, the two things that Amita didn't really touch upon are an economy which is largely which is largely catering to a rent-seeking class, so which doesn't really want taxes. So when we're not really able to generate tax revenue, we're not a- really able to fund whatever social or infrastructure spending that we want to do, eventually leading to borrowing, and this is what borrowing does to you on a long enough timeline.
Yeah, I think just to add one more thing to that is that, um, you know, ethnic discrimination has an economic cost, right? Just like gender discrimination has an economic cost. If you're if you have a job and you're discriminating against somebody because they're from a particular ethnic group or because they're from a particular gender group, you're you're not choosing the best person for that job sometimes. And so there are studies that can kind of like Put, do put a number on things like um, the costs of discrimination. We haven't uh, done one for ethnic discrimination or ethno-religious discrimination in Sri Lanka, but but those those um, biases and 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 uh, that are promoted by ethnonationalism also also contribute to to costs within our economy all the time. So um, I think it's important to to look at those as well. Okay, thanks, everyone. Um... We know we have a couple more requests for questions, but unfortunately, in the interest of time, since uh, it's been one and a half hours already, we're end the space. But do, um, you know, uh, reply to us if you have any more uh, questions and we're sure the speakers will respond um, publicly, um, you know, time permitting. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us and good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.